Welcome to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast, a programme highlighting key voices in the intersection of media, politics and public policy. On this week's podcast, we look at the changing nature of reporting on conflict and terrorism in the Middle East. Something has, has fundamentally changed in the way that we write about jihadism. ISIS changes everything. That was Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic speaking in November 2014 at the Shorenstein Center. We'll hear more of his thoughts on the increased security risks to foreign correspondents in the Middle East, why the situation has changed, and why he no longer recommends journalists travel to the region. We'll also hear from Farnas Fasihi, a senior writer at the Wall Street Journal, who spoke at the Shorenstein Center in March 2015. She discusses how coverage of the Middle East conflict suffers when journalists aren't able to report from the ground, and how she and her colleagues cope with the events they witness by finding moments of hope and positivity in an otherwise traumatic environment. Jeffrey Goldberg, national correspondent at The Atlantic, has covered the Middle East for many years, spending significant time on the ground there. As he recalls, working in the region was especially appealing to him as a young reporter. I, I noted in a flip way that it, in many ways, was fun. You know, when you're a young journalist and, and somebody pays for you to go fly to Pakistan and then rent a car and drive from Quetta to Kandahar to go interview the, the leaders of the Taliban, that's fun. That's exciting. And that's and it's it's thrilling in a kind of way, especially when you actually land the interview. And there is this um, quality when I was doing this work in the late '90s and early 2000s uh, in Pakistan and Afghanistan mainly, but you know in, in Lebanon and Iraq and, and Iran, there is this uh, there is this uh, quality of visceral excitement when you when you spend an evening with a group of people who lead organizations that are that are committed rhetorically and in actual fact to to murdering Americans, for instance, and you get out alive um, and you get out with interesting information, first-hand observations about people who, at that point, especially Americans, especially before 9-11, couldn't imagine existed. You know, it's not in our, it, we, we had, you know, we had before 9-11 this kind of impoverished imagination about what the world was, was like. Um, so that, that was, it was thrilling and interesting and new and, and fun. Goldberg gave an example of how he would evaluate a potentially risky situation while arranging an interview. Part of the trick, the main trick here, is to you know is to figure out who's who's leading you, you know, who's taking you in, who your who's your fixer, what is the arrangement. My my rule was that if um if the interview is coming together too easily, it's a bad sign. You know, if, if they say no, 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 meet us at meet us at five here, and and there was and there was no back and forth and no you know a- a- anxiety on their part, and and there weren't ten changes in plan. I thought to myself, this is getting too. I would I would blow off things. Um, and move hotels that same day, just because I thought, you know, you get a, you get a, you get a sense of it. In early 2002, the American journalist Daniel Pearl was kidnapped while reporting from Pakistan for the Wall Street Journal. Shortly after, he was beheaded, and the video of his murder was posted to the internet. As Jeffrey Goldberg explains, at the time, the murder of an American journalist in this region was seen as unusual. Even after Danny Pearl was was murdered, uh, he was a acquaintance, a friend of mine. He actually helped me in some of my early reporting in Pakistan. A, a lot of us, me included, thought that um, it, it was the exception that proved the rule. Like, like the, the literal thought beyond the horror and the tragedy, and the literal thought that I had was, those guys broke the rules. 
Like the people who killed Danny Pearl broke the, the, the contract. Because there was always a contract between terror organizations and journalists. You know, there's a transaction. I go to you. I write down accurately what you say. I carry that back to my audience. They're happy because they believe that they're right and so that their message is going out. I'm happy because I get to show how appalling they are. Uh, but, and, and everything was working. And, and, and it was a, there was a ceasefire, and Dexter Filkins, who is a, a very good friend of mine, actually quote him saying in this piece that, you know, we always thought that we were, you know, surrounded by, uh, there's a paraphrase, but, you know, in kind of a protective bubble. Like, you know, no, nobody would harm, they know that we're American journalists, and why would you harm an American <coughs> journalist? It doesn't make any sense. So Danny was still the, the, in my mind at least, the exception that proved a rule. ISIS changes everything. But since the American journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff were kidnapped in Syria and subsequently murdered by members of ISIS, with videos of their beheadings posted online and shared on social media, Goldberg has reconsidered his views on reporters travelling to the Middle East. Five or ten years ago, people who are, you know, graduating college at their college newspapers, Kennedy School, wherever, come to me and say, ask me, you know, how do I get into this field? Because it does seem exciting and thrilling from the outside. And, you know, and I, I would, uh, you know, and if they seem suitably competent and suitably ambitious and suitably smart, like they weren't going to just go do stupid things. But if I, if I judge the kid I'm talking to to be, you know, a reasonably smart person who can take care of himself, I say, look, this is, this is a king's life, to borrow Mank from Mencken. You know, this is, this is great. Somebody pays you to go talk to the most interesting and extreme and crazy people in the world. What's better than that? If, you, if you're a journalist and you want to see, you, know, you want to get people's secrets and you want to understand the world. Um, so I would tell them, you know, go learn Arabic or go learn Farsi or, you know, and go set yourself up in Cairo or Baghdad. And, you know, this is how you do it. And you're going to have to subsist on, you know, uh, you know, rice and hummus for a while. But it's but it's it's thrilling and exciting. One of the people several years ago I said this to was Stephen Sotloff. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know him well at all. I had met him in Israel. And he seemed like the classic model of the kid who is going to just take the world by storm and, and go out there and do excellent reporting. And he did excellent reporting until he was captured by ISIS and then, and then beheaded. And so I've made a decision in my own life. I'm not telling anybody ever again, like, don't follow my path because something, something very, very important has changed in the Middle East. Goldberg goes on to explain why ISIS represents such a significantly increased threat to foreign correspondents. I think it's in part due to the sort of increasing brutality of global Sunni jihadist movement. It also has to do with the fact that, that there's no need for the middleman anymore. Uh, I mean, ISIS communicates perfectly well through YouTube and, and Twitter uh, and, and Facebook. It doesn't need us. And so something radical has shifted in the way some of these terrible groups have, have, have seen us. And, and so I, I can't in good conscience tell anybody to go anywhere near this conflict anymore. Here's Farnas Fasihi of the Wall Street Journal. She spent the last year as a Neiman Fellow at Harvard, but prior to that had been reporting from abroad since 2002. Uh, I share Jeffrey Goldberg's um, sentiment in that, um, you know, when young freelancers ask me what should we do, I try very hard not to encourage them. Um, in fact, I try to discourage them from taking the risk and going into a, a place like um, rebel-controlled Syria, for example. But people still do. She comments that even with increased security procedures in place for foreign correspondents, nothing can completely protect journalists from harm. I think no matter how much security you have, if you have a GPS tractor, if you have a security guard with you, if, if you're surrounded by militants who are um, determined to behead you or kidnap you, that's just 
<laughs> it's you, you can't really protect yourself. But I think it's important to train them. Look, when I went to when I went to Afghanistan, I didn't receive any training. Five years after the beheading of, of my colleague Daniel Pearl, most news organizations were uh, giving reporters hostile environment training, just so we know how to handle ourselves uh, in those kind of areas. So so even within a few years with Iraq, that had changed. So I, I think it's, you, you know, you constantly negotiate what you can and what you can't do. Certainly the, the more training that a freelancer receives, the better, but I don't think anything can really protect you from that kind of threat. Jeffrey Goldberg notes that freelance journalists are more at risk than those employed full-time by major news organizations. It's a system built for exploitation. I remember what it, I remember what it felt like to be a 23-year-old journalist. All I wanted to do was get the New York Times. Yeah, I, all I wanted to do was someone to buy something that I wrote. And I knew that in order to, I wanted someone to pay attention. And um, you have a need, I have a need, as that 23-year-old. The needs merge, but it's, it's incumbent on the guy who's hiring to ask several questions. One is, what am I, you know, is this guy qualified? Is this person qualified? Two is, how, how dangerous is the situation that I'm asking? Three, do they have, are they desperate enough that they're going to use poor judgment, or are they going to use poor judgment because they're dumb? Four, what am I going to do for them when they get in trouble? I mean, that's another issue. There's not, it's not the legal issue as much as it's the moral issue. You know, it's like, and the Times, thank God, takes care of its people, takes care of its people. Um, some places aren't so great at taking care of the people. I mean, so uh, I think the system is built for exploitation, put it that way. News organizations are reluctant to send journalists to conflict areas, even if they volunteer. There are always people who want to go. And, you know, and the truth is, if I were 20 years younger right now, I would probably think that I'm, you know, more impervious than I am. And I would think, okay, I could figure my way through this problem. Look, if you're a publisher or a news executive, I mean, for a whole host of reasons, mainly the fact that you're human, you don't want to get that call from the State Department three in the morning saying, look, this thing has happened. Uh, we can't find your guy. And I think that the people I know who are in management uh, understand that, and I think you're seeing, um, you're seeing the most important war going on in the world right now, the, the, the combined Syria-Iraq catastrophe, goes substantially uncovered. Fewer American journalists on the ground in the Middle East is having a negative impact on coverage of the region, as Farnas Fasihi explains. This has taken some of the serendipity, I think, out of reporting, out of what we do. It's also made it a lot harder for us um, to really see what's happening on the ground. Because if you don't have access, if you can't really see for yourself what's happening, you have to rely on uh, information that you get from various sources, and most of them have an agenda. I mean, even the videos that we get from Syria, the tweets that we get, they're mostly from activists. It takes a lot of time to try to verify them, to try to figure out if what we're about to report is really accurate. In combination with the security, news organizations have also moved um, to uh, this digital first, mobile first, get the news out quickly, 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 putting more pressure on the reporters to turn things around. So um, I think the result has been, I think, reporting that um, is less original, perhaps, 
um, than, than it was per, a, a decade ago because um, when you're on the ground, you, you perhaps see the events and you talk to different people and, and you look at events in a different way. But if you're sitting behind your desk in Beirut, as many of us do, covering Syria, you all get the same YouTube feed, you all get the same Twitter feed, you're talking the same sources, so the pieces that you put out kind of cancel each other out, which has been a, a, a challenge in trying to really figure out how, uh, as the story becomes more and more complicated in the Middle East, how to approach this, how to, uh, how to um, make readers care, how to put a face on this human tragedy. This has also led to major developments taking the media by surprise. As a result of this sort of not being on the ground, sometimes the media misses something. We all miss the takeover of Mosul. Um, although we had been following ISIS, we knew that they had made in- inroads into Iraq, they'd taken over Fallujah. But when Mosul fell, um, everybody was shocked, uh, including us. Um, and, and I think it was because of our lack of access. Hiring Middle Eastern journalists to report from the countries at the centre of the conflict is not free of complication or security concerns either. Part of it is, is you know, when you're hiring from 7,000 miles away a Syrian stringer who somebody says is a good guy, but who knows who is, you know, who knows what his background is, who knows what it, first forget issues of accuracy and, and, and could be working for a particular government or could be working for, um, so you have problems. Probably a lot more time could be spent doing that initial vetting and then really building those people up. You're still responsible as the overseas news organization for their safety if you're asking them to do things, but it's at a different level because they're from that place uh, and, and they are in that, they are part of that story in an organic way, unlike, say, a kid from Harvard who decides that he wants to be a stringer in Syria. Both Fasihi and Goldberg agree on the importance of having American journalists reporting on the region although neither feels comfortable recommending any journalists risk their life for a story. The U.S. invasion of, of Iraq uh, has gotten us to where we are today. I think that you, we can't, as Americans and as American journalists, um, ignore this, this fact. Uh, you know. So I think there's, a, there's more responsibility on our part as American me- news organizations uh, to try to stay on the ground, to try to make sense of what's happening, and to try to cover it. There incredible negatives to this. I mean, I I think it's very, very important for America to have American journalists on the ground interpreting and understanding and trying to uh, figure out these problems that affect us in in huge ways, direct and indirect. But I'm not going to ever again tell somebody to go risk their life for for a story. It's just not worth it anymore. And so I, I think a period in the history of the American journalistic encounter with the Middle East is over. As Farnas Fazihi explains, even when journalists return from war zones safely, there are lasting emotional effects. If you've spent that much time in the Middle East, you don't leave unscarred. I mean, you know, we, we carry those emotional scars. It's, uh, it's difficult to continuously um, uh, put yourself at risk uh, and, and also cover and hear uh, the hardships that people are going through and their stories and, and remain uh, unaffected. But reporters in the Middle East have developed ways to support each other and help their colleagues deal with the stress of their occupation. There's not a whole lot of us who do this. It's, it's a pretty small group. I would say maybe 40 or 50. I think I kind of 9-11 created a, a new generation of war um, correspondents. And most of us were around the same age. And we've gone from one war zone to the next with one another. So we have these intense bonds and friendships. So I think those friendships really sustain you. Uh, in a war zone where after you file, you know that you can go knock on somebody's 
door and sit down and talk to them or have dinner with them or, or get a drink or whatever. Just some way to, to, to sort of get your mind off and, and process what you've seen. So as journalists face increasing dangers when reporting from the Middle East and regularly cover traumatic stories in such a volatile area, it's easy to be pessimistic. But as Farnas Fasihi comments, even in the most terrible of situations, there is still room for optimism. For me, some of the most um, gratifying moments as, as a reporter has been, has been um, encountering the resilience in, in people and sort of that human spirit in war zones that um, no matter how hard life gets or, or how difficult or extreme, people still try to find a way uh, to live and, and try to, um, you know, um, live a dignified life. I will never forget interviewing this one teacher who had been banned from teaching because they, they weren't allowed to be in the workforce. Um, and she had turned her basement into uh, a secret school for the little girls in the neighborhood. And they would come in different times because she was so afraid that if the Taliban in the neighborhood figure out that there was a flood of little girls coming to her house. Um, in the basement, without any windows, she had educated all the neighborhood girls for five years, taking them from first grade to fifth grade, because she had thought that if I don't do this, we're going to have an Ill illiterate generation of, of girls growing up. Um, so seeing those kind of things is, is um, yeah, there is good news. <laughs> You can hear both full-length talks and find audio and video from other Shorenstein Centre events at shorensteincentre.org. Thank you for listening to the Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by extrememusic.com.